0: Welcome to the Hindu Parley Podcast. This is Stanley Johnny, the Hindu's International Affairs Editor, your host today. Of late, we have witnessed era-shaping developments at the international level. If the United States was the sole superpower in the post-Soviet world, now there are more great powers competing with America. China's phenomenal rise has unleashed a superpower competition between the United States and China. Russia is challenging the post-war security architecture in Europe through its military means. IR scholars generally agree that the unipolar moment has passed, but it's not certain where the world stands today. Are we back to a new type of bipolar competition or a multipolar order is emerging? And what do these changes mean for India? which itself is a rising power. We will discuss all these questions in this episode of Parley. We have with us General B.K. Sharma, Director General of the United Services Institution of India, who's joining us from Moscow, where he is attending the Primakov Readings 2023, and Professor Swaran Singh of the School of International Studies, Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. Welcome to Parley, General Sharma and Professor Singh.
1: Thank you for having us on your
2: program, and thank you very much.
0: General Sharma, let me start with the obvious question. There are different arguments about the global order today. Some say it's economically multipolar, but militarily unipolar. Some say it's, it's lopsided multipolarity with different powers emerging, but there is always disparities among power. And while some others argue that we are back to, you know, bipolar competition between the United States and China, we witnessed Xi Jinping's recent visit to the United States and how he was welcomed by the Biden administration, etc., etc. So, what is your take on this, on the emerging global order?
2: You see, at the moment, everything is in a state of flux. Therefore, to give a very cat- categoric uh, kind of a coloration or a dispensation to the whole thing is premature. I would look at the present uh, world order, one of a asymmetric bipolarity, in which uh, uh, US still remains uh, a preeminent power, but China is closing in very fast. But yet, there is a substantial power differential between the two countries. Meanwhile, there are other power centers which are now emerging very fast, which would play a significant role in the balance of power. So I won't call it bipolarity. Typically, I would, won't call it unipolarity as such. I'll call it a, a symmetric diffuse uh, uh, world order, uh, which is taking shape. And with the passage of time, maybe these contours will get a little more clear and we would hedge towards some kind of a multipolarity and not a typical bipolarity as it is being propagated.
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, Professor swaran saying, let's look at the rise of China, which is, I think, uh, everybody would agree that China in the last 40 years, 50 years, has seen phenomenal rise economically and militarily. And you know, in your view, how this China's rise is affecting the global order?
1: Stanley, there is no doubt that in the last 40 years, if you have to identify a single factor influencing international orders, China definitely stands out as a clear one, particularly in its economic rise. A GDP in 1990 standing at 300 billion dollars moving to 1 trillion plus at turn of century and in 23 years now it is 19.3 trillion us dollars and still rising uh, that is an unprecedented uh, event or, or process to happen any time in human history and the fact that china is controlled by one party and uh, virtually by one man Uh, makes this economic levers particularly powerful in redefining global orders. But let me also mention here as an academic uh, that power definitely has been the defining feature of how world orders have been built and destroyed over years. Uh, Both the nature of power has changed, but at the same time, since there is no world government, uh, this power has often been military power at its core. And of course, now we talk of soft power and other things. And if you use that yardstick, we will see that in 19th century, countries that developed steam engines and developed naval fleets from there, small European countries became great powers. In 20th century, we had nuclear revolution. So we devised a new concept called superpowers. Great powers could control multiple events around the world and superpowers could control multiple events around the world simultaneously. But 21st century is a century of people's power. The connectivity that the world today sees is unprecedented. That results in interactions, sometimes even interdependence, to some extent global integration. And therefore, there could be bipolar impulses. Sometimes we hear of U.S and China contestations, but they are never likely to produce a rigid bipolar world, because world is so much interdependent and integrated now. And then of course, there are a whole lot of emerging powers and global south is coming to center stage and so on. And in that sense, I think important to underline here is that even the rigid bipolar uh, examples or templates that international relations theory have debated during the Cold War of 1950-60s uh, was uh, mostly notional because international relations theories were controlled by advanced Western countries. They assumed that the problems between East and West define the global order, leaving 100-plus non-aligned nations uh, without any consideration to their standing. So, in that sense, even the rigid bipolar order that international relations theory talks of was largely superimposed and notional. And no such bipolar order is likely to happen in the future because the world is now far more intertwined with each other. And I think, as General just mentioned, it's a diffused, complex, asymmetric order. But important to underline that this mosaic is constantly changing the flare of different colors. Sometimes you have emerging powers almost you know, determining global agenda. Sometimes you have permanent five of uh, UN Security Council in some cases making it important. Sometimes Global South, as you saw the entire effort of India during the global uh, G20 uh, process. Uh, global South is the most attractive. Every country is trying to become the voice of Global South now, whether it is Russia, China, India, United States. So I think it's a diffused uh, situation now. Uh, and that explains uh, Joseph Nye's diffusion of power, power itself is diffused, and therefore the orders that are driven by power will remain diffused as well.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Professor. I think we have common ground here. The General is talking about asymmetric bipolarity that could lead to some kind of a multipolar order, and we are talking about uh, people's power, diffusion of power, Uh, you know, we will uh, come back to this, Uh, and General, taking the discussion forward. Uh, you are right now in Moscow attending the Primarkov Forum. And Russia, uh, you know, until recently, since the Gaza war, Israel's war on Gaza took over the headlines. The Ukraine war has been dominating headlines and it became a major international uh issue. See, the war in Ukraine, you know, it's been going on for the past 20 months. Do you think the war has driven Russia deeper into Chinese embrace? Because You know, there are a lot of reports coming out and then Putin and Xi Jinping have very good personal equation as well. So if so, if this is happening, what are the implications for India, given that India has very warm strategic partnership with Russia, but at the same time, testy relationship with China?
2: See, I have been following the geopolitical dynamics in Eurasia for more than a decade now. And I remember that uh, before 2014, when the economic sanctions were imposed on Russia, Russians were extremely circumspect about uh, having any closer ties with uh, China. Because the memories of the Cold War when Chinese had sided with the United States of America vividly played in the Russian psychology. And to the extent that they were also not very keen to develop this trans-Siberian pipeline to China. Many of the Russian scholars who came to India alluded to this fact. But with the imposition of economic sanctions, Russia was but left with the Hobson choice to gravitate towards China. And then push came to Xiao uh, in 2020, uh, subsequently when uh, this... uh, invasion of Ukraine took place and second set of economic sanctions were imposed and expansion of NATO, uh, they came as close as 300 uh, miles uh, east of St. Petersburg, west of St. Petersburg. So Russia uh, started gravitating towards China. But at the same time, let me tell you, whenever we have these internal discussions uh, with the Russian think tank here. They are extremely conscious of this fact that they cannot put all their eggs in one basket. There are still simmering undercurrents of uh, some mistrust between the two sides, particularly as far as uh, uh, the balance of power in Central Asia is concerned. Uh, To me, it so appears that the relationship at the moment looks very cozy. From the exterior, but internal, deep down, there are misgivings on both the sides. Therefore, uh, Russians uh, would not like to go whole hog into the Chinese orbit. They are very smart players. They are strategists par excellence. They know how to balance. And there are enough signals that are coming from Russia that in pursuance of their policy or what you call pivot to Asia, They would like to diversify their relationship, particularly in terms of energy-based relationship uh, with the developing economies of uh, Asia, particularly East Asia and India. They are very seriously looking at reinventing their relations with India. They have, to a large extent, accepted India's uh, uh, strategic imperatives to be part of uh, Indo-Pacific construct. So, there is a degree of accommodation and understanding. Uh, the moot point is that uh, these two very, very important corridors which will give a uh, sort of a gravitas to the relationship. One is International North-South uh, Trade Corridor and second is the vastak and uh, Chennai Corridor. We st- still, though we have a blueprint, but we still do not have actually the wherewithal to make these corridors Operational. Once we are able to make these corridors operational, probably uh, the ch- Russian dependence on China is going to reduce. And this is the direction in which we should be able to work. And this is the dialogue which is presently taking place between uh, Russia and China, uh, Russia and India. Yesterday, you know, there was a session here on Global South. And what emerged very clearly that while Chinese may play a lip service to global south, but Russians are quite serious and they do see an important role being played by India. To that extent, maybe Russian position will be closer to Indian position as far as the primacy of the salience of global south is concerned. So these are some of the areas on which dialogue is taking place, and I think there is the good scope and opportunity for us to give it a little more push. Thank you.
0: Professor, if you allow me, let me ask a hypothetical question. So, you talked about the emerging global order, people's power and diffusion of power, etc., etc. But do you think, you know, the Chinese and the Americans, would they prefer to have a bipolar order between themselves or would they like to work with uh, multipolar order, working with the global south, etc, etc. What what do you think?
1: I think India civilizationally has been uh, focusing on diversity and uh, building consensus and unity in diversity. So India is, uh, in terms of uh, its cultural orientation, not very comfortable in any rigid bipolar system where it has uh, difficulty of making choices as to which side to lean on. Uh, So in that sense, India would be uh, comfortable in a multipolar or multilateral or polycentric, depending on how you wish to define that reality, that kind of world order, where India definitely will see itself as an independent pole. Uh, So in that sense, uh, I don't see India being very comfortable in Uh, aligning uh, or promoting or accepting any rigid bipolar system. Uh, India itself is now world's largest population country, uh, fastest growing economy among major economies, uh, of course, uh, ensured of political stability, third largest military spender, one can go on and on. Uh, Itself uh, carries an enormous weight and you can notice that kind of assertive nature of foreign policy that we witness now. Uh, would be that uh, makes India also attractive uh, to both China and United States and of course to European countries as well. In that sense, we have noticed increasing acceptance of India's own worldview, which is not towing either line of China or United States, becoming increasingly acceptable to both sides. Russia, China, United States today accept India standing by its own worldview and pursuing its own national interest. Uh, so, for example, when United States wants to set up a quad for Indo-Pacific, India is the only non alliance partner in that quad. United States wants to set up another quad for West Asia. India is again the only non-West Asian country other than United States, which is in that quad. Likewise, Chinese also increasingly understand that you know, India will have to be dealt uh, on its own terms, in that sense. So, I think India will continue to work for and pursue a more uh, uh, multilateral and, in that sense, diffused world order, which is how the world order is growing, and India is perfectly at home with it, simply because civilizationally, this, you know, Indic civilization has been very diverse. Sometimes we also call it very porous. So, there are multi-ethnicities, languages, culture, regions, you know, all kinds of diversity we have and we are comfortable with that, unlike some other countries which are relatively culturally monolithic. So, in that sense, uh, India is going to be increasingly at home with the world orders that we are seeing emerging uh, in a very, very diffused and uh, uh, in sort of fluid manner. And uh, India, therefore, is going to also become increasingly not just attractive, but also influential. You notice the visibility of Indian leadership around the world now is very different. The acceptability of India's leadership in different regions of the world is very different now. So, I think India is quite in tune with the way world orders are emerging, which are far more asymmetric, flexible, diffused, uncertain, and constantly one has to keep an eye on how the trends are changing. And India is perfectly, in in, in that sense, at home with that kind of world orders emerging. And that creates a space for India to emerge as one of the players. And India would never even imagine to be the only player in that sense. India is happy to be one of the multiple players around the world in ensuring peace and stability in various regions around the world.
0: Just adding to that, Professor Swaran Singh, you know, India has very good ties with the United States as well as with Russia. But at the same time, India has very testy relationship with China. You have a Himalayan border problem. And relationship is not very good uh, in the last uh, two, three years. Not in a very good shape. So if the great power competition heats up, because that's anyway happening between China and the United States, between Russia and the United States. So if it heats up, do you think India's options would shrink? Or India, given the current trajectory it follows, would be able to ride out of the storm.
1: Let me say there is often temptation to uh, put India's relations with the United States and China uh, in contrasting terms, which makes it easier to highlight the differences. But uh, it's not that all is hunky-dory between India and United States. India had signed a joint statement way back in July of 2005, which had opened a new relationship in terms of nuclear deal being finally signed in 2008 and we were supposed to get uh, six nuclear power reactors from united states these have not come till date so it's not that everything is going uh, fantastic you know americans are not happy to invest in india's nuclear industry because they are not happy with the uh, law that we have uh, created for civil nuclear liabilities in this country on the other hand chinese are having uh, 138 billion dollars of trade with india so it's not that in China's case, we have only difficulties, in the United States, we have only solutions, both are complex relations, because India, just like China and United States, is a major global player in that sense, and uh, relationships will have their difficulties. I mean, even among the best friends, uh, Britain and United States, there are differences, I can pinpoint one after another. You saw recently commentaries on Gaza by Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak, they were different. So, first of all, it's going to be complex relationships that are going to develop among major players. Indeed, if the competition between China and the United States, Russia and the United States heats up, as you said, it does uh, uh, reduce the maneuverability of India in terms of how to manage good relations with Russia, China and United States at the same time. Uh, but I don't see that uh, heating up to the extent when our options will be closed completely because these countries are enormously dependent on each other. I mean, it may be that Russia and the United States, because of Cold War traditions, they were in the you know opposite blocks and they may not have so much interdependence between themselves. But the new binary of China and United States is full of $800 billion of trade between two countries uh, they receive each other's citizens as uh, business and tourism and all kinds of uh, visitors from each other all the time. So I don't see that a rigid bipolar system will actually ever happen in future, which will actually make for India enormous difficulties in, you know, almost pushing India to choose between one or the other. I don't think that is going to happen. And meanwhile, India is, you know, emerging as a power center itself and becoming more assertive which means there is going to be increasing space for India where these two countries, United States and China, are going to also listen to what you may call even India's whims and fancies. So that space is going to stay constantly. We have to constantly learn how to maneuver and identify those spaces so that our relations remain useful and remain catalyst in pushing India's interests forward. It's never going to be that there is not going to be no problem in any relationships. In all relationships, there are going to be difficulties and challenges. It's a constant management of those challenges that India is doing and will continue to do. Uh,
0: thank you, sir. Uh, General, you mentioned uh, that the way forward is to, you know, strengthen the connectivity projects with Russia so that India will have a better relationship with Russia and which will also allow the Russians to reduce their dependency on China. Uh, let me ask you about, you know, India's. China challenge, because uh, at the end of the day, China is a superpower, which is an economic and military superpower. And the United States and China, at least for now, have shown signs of a Duton, Biden invited. Uh, the United States over the last few months have worked very hard to make the summit happen, the biden Sea summit happen. Uh, so how do you think, you know, how should india deal with the china challenge because you have a border problem china is also uh, you know a, a huge power and you had violence in 2020 in galwan and indian government says that there won't be you know relationship cannot be normalized unless the border became peaceful so there is this constant friction is there right now in india china relationship what in your view should be india's strategic approach to china
2: Firstly, uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that China is going to be a long-term competitor in Asia, and border is just one of the pressure points that China uses against India. And in the foreseeable future, I do not visualize any major breakthrough on the border resolution aspect. The second thing that we have to recognize that there is a huge power asymmetry between India and China, and with the passage of time, this power asymmetry will remain if not grow. Therefore, fundamental to India's dealing with China is a growth of our own comprehensive national power, and within that comprehensive national power like we are going to be the third largest economy, maybe in another decade plus. Uh, with that economic clout, we have to spend more and more money on our military modernization with added focus on induction of disruptive technology, niche and disruptive technologies because there is a huge power gap in the disruptive technology domain between us and chinese which gives them a competitive advantage and probably a propensity to exercise military option vis-a-vis india once that power gap is narrowed probably china will not be able to resort to coercive tactics against india and that may provide a better incentive for china or at least it becomes Uh, almost imperative for China to resolve our boundary issue with India. So that's a very, very fundamental issue. The second issue is about our internal balancing. Within India, we do have fault lines. And rather than mending those fault lines, uh, there are, because of the political calculations, uh, those fault lines get accentuated. So, societal cohesiveness is extremely important as part of internal balancing, particularly bringing peace and tranquility into the border states, uh, which which are adjacent to contiguous to China and Pakistan on the other side. Then, as part of our external balancing, I think uh, we need to, though we are following this, what you call is multi-vector engagement, but as Professor Swaran Singh very nicely brought out, that our relations with the uh, Americans are not all that hunky-dory. We must ac- acknowledge the fact that America is a superpower, and they have a 800 billion plus kind of a trade with the China. Therefore, uh, uh, to just visualize that uh, in the event of any confrontation with Chinese, uh, Americans are going to sort of come towards India's help in a significant manner. I think that's a a kind of assumption that we should get out of our minds. But as part of our external balancing, I think uh, we need to uh, balance out our relations with the United States of America so that in some form we are able to perpetuate even China's two front dilemma that is Western Pacific on one, one hand and LSE at the other hand. Likewise, uh, there's other issues, for example, make in India, Atam Nirvar Bharat, Digital India, Viksit Bharat, all these initiatives will have to be taken to their logical conclusion for which we require to have more conducive, better business uh, and foreign direct investment environment in India. And there's a lot of work that has to be done. And one of the most important challenge here is how do you deal with your bureaucracy, uh, which is given to red tapism? And how do you really put into action not only the whole of government, but the whole of na- nation approach towards a national building and comprehensive national security. With all this put together, I'm saying that the power asymmetry with Chinese will narrow down, and probably there'll be better incentives for us to look at border from a new reference point and develop some kind of a mod, new modest vivendi with China's uh, to live in a probably in a near harmonious relations.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you, General. We are now running out of time. Just one last question. Uh, Professor uh, Soren Singh, in his opening remarks, General Sharma said that the world is in, in a kind of a flex situation. Right now, if you look at the global security dynamics, you have a war in Eastern Europe, you have a war in West Asia. And in Ukraine, the United States is supporting Ukraine against the Russians. And in West Asia, the United States is supporting Israel in its attack on Gaza, on, on Hamas. So... How do you look at the global security situation? Are we witnessing a major security reduction? Or, and what does it mean for the global security order?
1: I think major uh, wars uh, that see uh, superpowers like United States openly advocating one of the two sides versions, um, make them uh, you know, sort of really global events. Otherwise, violence uh, and civil wars uh, have been all over the world, uh, all the time in that sense. Uh, And what happens in such wars is that uh, they become televised wars and the world becomes far more aware of uh, what is happening in those wars. Uh, But even in those wars, my anticipation is, if you look at history of the last hundred years of interstate wars, most of them end up, and I hope General Sharma will vouch me, most of them end up in fatigue. Either ammunitions get finished or the enthusiasm. And we are noticing some of them, uh, some of that happening in case of uh, Ukraine, where uh, uh, President Biden is not able to sort of get the Congress uh, support financially, uh, his engagement and providing weapons and support to Ukraine. That is how uh, plugging it along with uh, Israel is being tried, and uh, Joe Biden's support to Israel is partly driven by the fact that Republicans uh, stand by Israel, uh, and therefore they might develop a joint package for both Israel and Ukraine. So there are political compulsions that make leaders do that. And I think deeper point here is the military-industrial complex. You know, industries that are producing destructive weapons all the time, and they're sort of spreading that instruments of death and destruction around the world. That is a deeper question that needs to be addressed. I mean, I'm always surprised how come terrorists around the world never closed shop because they couldn't have access to weapons. So violence is going to be widespread, wide spread because there is a huge military industrial complex behind it and 24 to 25% of total global exports of weapons come from United States and therefore their economy is engaged very clearly with exporting weapons. So wars will continue to be reality, except that only when United States presidents, you know, jumps on the flight and rushes to Tel Aviv and makes an announcement, he knows what is happening, makes it global headlines. And that, that draws greater attention. Otherwise, you know, wars and violence is global. Solution lies in addressing the military-industrial complex that enables people to do this kind of killing all over the world.
0: Thank you, sir. General Sharma, any concluding remarks on the global security situation?
2: Uh, I think uh, I would just say that uh, the ongoing or the way the, the the situation is evolving, it is full of challenges. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, uh, it has provided good opportunities for India, as Professor Swarn Singh said. Uh, in the beginning, that uh, we have a great international acceptability vis-a-vis Chinese. And our clout and our influence is rising. We have virtually transited uh, from the stage of a balancing power to maybe a leading power. And uh, I think uh, we should take leadership role, particularly in regard to addressing the issues of uh, common security to all countries. For example, non-traditional security threats and uh, other uh, sort of non-strategic frontiers like space, outer space, information space and other technologies. If we are able to also leverage India's twist with uh, what you call is digital India and how digital empowerment of India has taken place and how this model can be emulated by other countries. Also, in our own immediate neighborhood, I think we need to put in more effort and become a preferred, what you call, is a net security partner with these countries, particularly in the domain of non traditional security, as also become an anchor of regional and, uh, economic integration and soft power integration.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Thanks for joining us for the parlay. Thank you. Thank you, Stanley.